Good afternoon, this is Alicia Bales. Welcome to a very special program remembering legendary civil rights attorney, Dennis Cunningham, who died on Saturday at the age of 86. In this hour, I'm going to play an interview I did with Dennis on October 29, 2019 for the KZYX Ecology Hour, which was broadcast just before Dennis was honored by EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt County, for his lifetime of advocacy on behalf of activists. We'll also hear from Daryl Cherney, who Dennis represented in his civil rights case with Judy Berry against the FBI and Oakland police, and from Tom Wheeler, the executive director of EPIC, about Dennis's role as a hero to up-and-coming social justice lawyers. Dennis Cunningham was a hugely significant figure in the American civil rights and the environmental movements. He spent decades fighting on behalf of Earth First activists right here in Mendocino, in addition to his best-known client, Judy Berry, and a number of other police misconduct cases. But he was so humble and dedicated to his work that those of us here who knew him personally may not have realized what a rock star he was. I first met Dennis in 1992 when he represented the activists of the Albion Nation Uprising against Louisiana Pacific Corporation when the company filed a blanket lawsuit trying to intimidate us from protesting their logging in the Enchanted Meadow. For the next decade and a half, I was lucky enough to work closely with Dennis Cunningham on a number of cases, first supporting Judy Berry and her paralegal work on the FBI case, and then after her death as a member of the legal team myself, taking her landmark case to trial. I sat at Dennis's side the day the jury brought back their historic verdict, finding the FBI and Oakland police liable for $4.4 million in damages for targeting Judy and Daryl's civil rights when they falsely arrested them and lied about them carrying the bomb that had been meant to kill them. After that, Dennis and our legal team took on another civil rights case together, this time suing the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department for their policy of directly applying liquid pepper spray to protesters' eyes to try to force them to release from lockdown blockades, a practice they began in 1998 and which was stopped when the jury finally declared it a civil rights violation. But Dennis's amazing career stretched back decades before that. His first criminal case out of law school was to represent the legendary Black Panther leader Fred Hampton in Chicago. Dennis would go on to sue Fred Hampton's murderers, the Chicago police and FBI, on behalf of Fred's family to reveal the truth about the COINTELPRO operation to silence this young black revolutionary leader. Dennis also worked with his colleagues Michael Deutsch and Liz Fink, among others, to uncover law enforcement's appalling and murderous abuses of the Attica brothers in 1971 a case that finally settled 30 years later. Dennis Cunningham died on Saturday after a long battle with cancer. Today, we'll remember his extraordinary life in his own words. Here's my conversation with Dennis Cunningham from October 29th, 2019. My guest today is Dennis Cunningham, who is a legendary civil rights attorney, a friend to the activists and the social justice movement and the environmental movement, and he's represented probably half of the people listening in the listening area right now over the course of the last 30 years. So Dennis Cunningham, welcome to KZYX. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and it's a great privilege to have you. And one of the reasons, of course, that we have you on the air today is because you are going to be honored by the Environmental Protection Information Center uh, on November 9th up in Garberville because of a lifetime of advocacy for the environment. Well, that is indeed an honor, to tell you the truth. I'm very taken and, and, and you know, grateful for it. And so you have a long history as a civil rights attorney, but your work as a civil rights attorney has um, has blended with the, your environmental, well, with the environmental movement. Um, can you actually first talk about uh, the roots of your work as a civil rights attorney? Where where did you get your start, and and how did you first kind of get an inkling that you were going to get involved in social justice activism and and become an attorney for activists? I got started by being recruited into the, well, you know, I became a lawyer because I went on the March on Washington in 1963, and my friend that I was with riding home on the train was sick, but he was awake, and he said, we have to get involved in this stuff. And that was like a light bulb going on for me. 
called the Chicago Legal Defense Committee in 1968 through the National Lawyers Guild to help represent the people who were would get arrested uh, during the Democratic National Convention, which was looming then. And, uh, and I did that, and I met uh, people, and I met one guy in particular who said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have a law firm and just represent the movement? And that was another light bulb. And uh, I knew a couple of guys, and we started having meetings, and um, this was this was in uh, uh, probably the fall of Um, Black Panthers as clients as early as actually met Fred Hampton and the Chicago Panthers before he was murdered. Um, can you talk about crossing paths with such an extraordinary leader? Well, he was a, absolutely an extraordinary person. He was only 21 years old when he was killed. And, and uh, he had more, uh, what I guess they call charisma, personal magnetism. He was extraordinarily direct and open and, and uh, uh, you know, a forthright person. And he never, uh, he, he never sugarcoated anything. And he was a great leader. People just, the, the Panthers were a big success in Chicago and Illinois because of him, because people were so drawn to him and he was so persuasive about the idea of revolution. And then and, for people who may not for people who may not know his story, can you talk about what then happened to him? This he was murdered in his bed by the cops. He was they, they raided the house where he was staying, a, an apartment where a bunch of them were staying, and they came in shooting, and they had a FBI plant in the party, and he had given them a floor plan of the apartment, and it showed where his bed was in his back bedroom, and one guy came in with a, with a carbine, and just went to the open doorway of the front bedroom and fired some like 80-some shots 
right through the wall at the place where the head of the bed was. But in fact, you know, all the shots went into the bed and not into him. One shot went into him, but then they went in the room. He, they couldn't wake him. The other brothers went to try to wake him when the, the first, you know, noise outside of these raiders was and uh, they couldn't wake him because he'd been drugged by this guy who'd been in the apartment the night before, the same guy, William O'Neill. And, and uh, he literally never woke up. And they came in the back room and, and uh, uh, shot him through the head, point blank range, dragged his body out onto the floor and uh, people have seen them, those photographs of the mattress and the blood on the floor. And, and the police so the officers smiling as they brought his body out. Yeah. Um, and this was a case of uh, an assassination of an extraordinary young black leader um, in Chicago in 19... It was 1969, right? Yes, December 4th. And the so Chicago... 50 years. Wow. 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 And uh, and the Chicago police were involved, but the FBI was also involved in this case. Is that right? The FBI instigated the, 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 the informant, the, the undercover the Judas agent was working for the FBI. And they got the floor plan from him and gave it to the cops and urged the cops to do the raid. And there were some cops, there had been a, a shootout a few weeks before and a couple of cops got killed. And, and uh, so they were raring to go and get revenge. And they just busted in and they shot four other people that were in the apartment. And um, who didn't die. One other person did die, Mark Clark, uh, who was at the door, and the guy came in and shot him as he walked in the door, just killed him. And they, 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 I mean, it was an extraordinary thing. It was uh, a special detail of cops that was assigned to the prosecutor's office, and the prosecutor was a lunatic, Ed Hanrahan who had uh, declared a war on gangs in Chicago. And, and uh, uh, he classified the Panthers as a gang. And he had this squad of cops assigned to his office, and he sent them out there. And they did the murder. Well, and this, uh, you are being honored for a lifetime of environmental advocacy and a kind of an environmental legacy. But this background, uh, which is where you first got started in your career uh, as an attorney and as an activist attorney representing activists targeted by the state, uh, you went on to do this here in during the Timber Wars. You were Judy Berry's attorney in her lawsuit against the FBI and the Oakland police. That's right. So there's this kind of through line where um, the the very same agency uh, you had, I don't know, were you were you like a young idealist? Were you having to learn through the course of the case that followed? Um, I mean, the 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 incredible violence and brutality of what they did to Mark Clark and to Fred Hampton. I mean, it, it's it, it like is mind boggling that they busted into this 21 year old man's house and shot him in his bed. Um, did you have to kind of, how did you grapple with that? Was this something you ever expected to be doing? No, I mean, you couldn't expect something like that to happen, even though, you know, it wasn't that much of a surprise once the, the, uh, uh, it wasn't that much of a surprise because of the cops, because their hostility was so great and, and, uh, so overt in the black community and against the Panther Party. But, but the, the, the FBI's involvement was secret, you know. There was just uh, only around that time that people began to learn about COINTELPRO. And uh, um, then finally, when the uh, 
were retrieved where they talked to each other about uh, what they were going to do, then it became much clearer that uh, how, how deeply involved they'd been. And, and they'd been doing COINTELPRO since the, you know, early part of the century. They, they, they went after Garvey and the, his movement. They went after the Communist Party and the black people, Claude Lightfoot, others in the, in the Communist Party. And um, they were, uh, that was their thing, you know, in addition to uh, uh, doing uh, uh, cases about cars stolen and taken across state lines. They, they, and they did break-ins, you know, they did spying break-ins in people's houses, all the anti-war people they went after. I mean, it was, it, but that was all secret at that time. And um, even though I think a lot of people suspected them of being involved in a lot of dirty stuff, but uh, then the proof came out and it was mind-blowing. And were you part of the group that w- was able to bring out the truth in Fred Hampton's case? How how did the truth finally come out about the FBI's COINTELPRO operations against these activist movements? It, it was complicated. The, the informant, O'Neill, was, uh, he, he kept on pretending to be a panther, after Fred was killed, but he the the FBI put him in this other case, uh, a cop who was in the dope ring, and there was a murder that took place, and he was a witness to it. And this is like a couple years later, and we've been suing the cops all this time, and we didn't know anything about the FBI being involved, but. He, they brought him to court to testify against this cop, and uh, and the lawyer was someone who knew what was going on, and uh, he cross-examined him about working for the FBI and being a spy in the Panthers, and that broke in the papers, and it just you know it blew the case up in a way, and and and. Um, then we were suing the FBI too. And oh, we you had mean... to go to a, 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 a we had to have a secret meeting and fly on a plane to go take his deposition in a secret place. And um, you know, he he uh, went on with them for years. So you had originally sued the Chicago police in the civil rights lawsuit after Fred Hampton's murder, and you didn't know that the FBI, is, the FBI was going to be a co-defendant? No, we didn't find that out for a couple of years into the lawsuit. And then we sued all of them, too, you know, and, then, and that was a big thing in the case. The case didn't go to trial until 1976, and... Uh, um, by then, the church committee had come out with all this stuff that that uh, these revelations about all the dirty stuff the FBI was involved in trying to neutralize movements. Wow. Okay, so for folks who are just tuning in, this is the Ecology Hour. I'm your host, Alicia Bales, Alicia Little Tree Bales, um, and my guest is Dennis Cunningham, who is a legendary civil rights attorney, a lifetime of amazing civil rights activism representing uh, as an attorney activist movements who've been targeted by the state. And he is being honored in a couple of weeks here up at the Environmental Protection Information Center's annual meeting. He's getting the Semper Virens Award for a lifetime achievement in environmental advocacy. So we're talking about your history with the Black Panthers in Chicago and the Chicago People's Law Office, which is phenomenal as well. Um, and we're going to talk about one more big case that you had. Uh, I mean, it's amazing to talk about it in the past tense since it took so many decades, but um, that you that you also worked on before you got here to, to Mendocino County and started to uh, represent environmental folks. So, um, yeah, can you talk about the Attica case and how you came to be part of that? Well, we, you know, 
when the rebellion began, it was big in the news. And uh, by the second or third day, we were already talking about, you know, how they're going to need lawyers. And, and lawyers were going there. And we finally, after some struggle, you know, because we had this fledgling office and we didn't really have any money. But uh, we couldn't lay off, you know. It was such a big thing and such a phenomenal thing that had happened. Well, I think we're going to have to back up a little bit for um, people who have never heard of the Attica Uprising. Who could that be? I don't know. Anyone under <laughs> young, young people, 30, right. 40? Well, I don't know. They had a, you know, Attica was a prison in western New York where uh, it was full of, of uh, black and Puerto Rican guys from New York City and, and uh, Buffalo and Rochester and and uh, they were extremely uh, political, and they had, uh, you know, a Black Panther Party chapter in there, and a Young Lords chapter, and other groups. And uh, they, this um, rebellion broke out there, and by a fluke, they managed to get control of a huge part of the prison. And they had a lot of uh, hostages from the staff members, and they got they parked themselves in the middle of a big yard, a prison yard. There were four yards in the prison. This was one of them. They're divided in across the four square things, and and um, uh, you know they, there was the there was going to be some kind of action to retake the prison and. Uh, so a couple of people from the office went up there and were in the first group of lawyers that tried to get into prison after the the retake and um, after the whole thing where they said that they came out and said that they had no choice but to go in because the prisoners had started slashing the throats of the hostages and it was a total lie and all the hostages that were killed some 29 hostages were, I haven't read the numbers right anymore, and were killed, a number of hostages were killed by gunfire from the police. And, uh, and there was a, just a massacre. There were, there were, no, it wasn't, it was 39 people were killed and eight or nine of them were hostages and the rest were prisoners in the assault. And uh, uh, so then they, they, uh, there was terrible massacre and torture of, of the brothers in the yard and then in the cell block afterward for days. And, and the lawyers tried to get in to see them, and they had a court order from the federal judge up there in Buffalo, and they wouldn't let them in. And so they went back to the judge, and he said, well, I guess I'd better withdraw the order, you know. And it was days before they were allowed in. And, but finally they were, and then that whole thing began. Of, of, uh, uh, then the state uh, figuring out who they were going to blame and, and uh, put criminal charges on, which they ultimately did. They, entire, they had... 42 indictments with 62 uh, prisoners as defendants and about 1,400, a total of like 1,400 felony counts, half of which would, would, would bear a life sentence, you know, and it was all about kidnapping and uh, stuff like that. And um, we, got we got involved in helping represent them and uh, there were lawyers from all over the eastern part of the country who got involved in that. They're, they had a special judge, and he made a ruling that each one of the prisoners had to have his own lawyer. So we got, you know, we were helping. Everybody was helping through the lawyer's guild to recruit lawyers. And we finally had, you know, 60 lawyers who, who uh were representing each representing different brothers and and that stuff you know the the uh, all the pr 
pretrial maneuvering and stuff went on for several years, three or four years, and finally um, they were ready to, they had a, one trial. Um, actually, they had two or three trials, I think. And these were the criminal trials from the Attica uprising? The criminal trials, right. trials of prisoners accused of various crimes involved in the, in the rebellion. And uh, then there was a guy in the prosecutor's office. They had a special prosecution team, and he got recruited into that, a guy named Malcolm Bell. And he saw that they, the operation of that office was totally one-sided. They weren't doing anything about all the murders and torture that had been done by the cops. Uh, and the state, the New York State Police, and... and um, he went to the New York Times about it, and there was a big scandal, and it led to an investigation of the investigation, and then an investigation of that investigation. <laughs> and, uh, uh, ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, all those cases were dropped. All the criminal and charges were dropped. All the criminal cases were wow. dropped. The one guy had there had been one guard who had been hit in the head in the opening moments of the rebellion, and he died over the weekend, which was a terrible thing because there were these negotiations for a peaceful surrender. And uh, and once the, this guy died, everybody thought, well, they could charge us all with murder, you know. And so the thing got hung up, and, and they wouldn't wait anymore. Rockefeller wouldn't wait. And he ordered the assault. They told him, don't do it on Sunday afternoon when everybody's watching television for the football game. But it did it first thing Monday morning. And we had started a civil case about all that stuff somewhere along the way during the criminal case. And uh, uh, the judge who got that case was a crackpot. And he sat on the motion to dismiss for about three years. And then finally, uh, he put out the word, you know, you guys better do something. About, I'm denying the motion to dismiss. You guys better do something about this case or I'm going to go ahead and throw it out. And some of the brothers, Big Black and Akil Al-Jundi, uh, came back to us. Um, and And... Me and Michael Deutsch from the PLO and Elizabeth Fink, a New York City lawyer who had been involved in the criminal defense stuff right along and was, had come close with a lot of the brothers. And we took up this civil case, but somehow it was almost impossible to make it move. We finally went to trial in 1991, 20 years after the event. Uh, unbelievable. It took 20 years to get their civil rights case to trial. To get to, to, to trial, and then, and, and, and then it took another, whatever, 10 years before it finally got resolved at all. And, and uh, there were actually three trials and three verdicts for us. And then the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit took those verdicts away and said that it was an invalid class. It wasn't a valid class action, and if we wanted to sue them, we'd have to start over with individual cases by all the brothers. There were 1,200 brothers in the yard. And so then they said, but we think it would be a good class for a settlement. And they moved the case to another judge, and the settlement got worked out. And uh, a lot of brothers got some money, and we got paid, sort of. So you but took the case to trial until, for... Until, you know, twenty the year 2000. It would have been 20 years, 29 years, 39 wow. years, whatever it was. Um, so you took the trial the case to trial three times got three verdicts in your favor and then finally had to go into a settlement because the judge decided after the fact that it was not 
not a legitimate class? It wasn't class? that judge, it was the Court of Appeals. Oh. It was a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals. But ultimately, you did win the Attica case, even though it was 29 years after the event. Uh, you could say that. I mean, we certainly won those trials. Big Black got a verdict for $4 million. Okay, for, not 4000 $4 million for civil rights $4 abuses. $4 million. He had been taken. They made all the brothers strip, and they drove them through this tunnel into another yard and had them line up in this long uh, uh, snake line, all naked, with their hands on their heads. And they took him and put him on a table next to the door into another tunnel, naked, lying on his back, and and uh, put a football under his neck and said if the football fell off, they'd kill him. And all the other brothers who were standing in this line had to watch this, and then they were made to go into the tunnel and run through a gauntlet with all broken glass on the floor and police lined up on both sides with rifles and axe handles they beat them with. And they put them all through that. And we showed that. And, uh, you know, we just, it, it was a, the, the weirdest legal experience you could imagine taken all together. And and and, and um, you know they had a we had a jury in the first case the first case was against a bunch of the commanders of the assault and uh, they they uh, the jury was completely divided from the very beginning not least because the first three people on the jury out of six were were picked by the judge without questioning them about how they felt about prisoners or about black people. And um, then we went back the next day and said we weren't going to go ahead if he didn't ask those questions. So he did, but he wouldn't take these three people off the jury. And they went for two months not even talking to each other of deliberation. So they'd go and they'd get him to read back testimony and sit there. And the judge went on vacation. He went to Barbados. Oh, my gosh. And, and then finally came back, and they finally brought back a verdict against one of the assistant wardens because he'd been in the meeting, the planning, the assault, and he'd also been in the yard when they were doing all that stuff to everybody. Well, I'm curious, Dennis, was was uh, the inmate that you knew as Big Black, was he alive when the $4 million verdict came down? Yes. So he got yes, to experience uh, this, at least this level of justice. Yes, he was, and, and he did. I mean, he never got the money. He got some money, but he didn't get that money. Well, let's move on to your experience in the environmental movement around here. I mean, I, 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 I knew there was a little bit of overlap. So the Attica case happened in 1991. When it was back in New York, and you were still working with the team from the Chicago People's Law Office, Michael Deutsch and Liz Fink. Um, but at the same time, right around 1991 was when you came on, maybe it was 92, right, when you came on Judy, Judy Berry's case. I think it was early case. 92, yeah. Yeah. They... They, um, um, so the case was already going, the case that Bill Simpich started, um, and they just wanted more help with it. And, now, I'm uh, afraid with uh, this one, even though this is a hometown case and it happened right here in Mendocino County, there are still people, because it was so long ago now, uh, that, who don't know this story. So, And I'll also mention that uh, I worked with Dennis on this case for, for many years and um, after Judy died of breast cancer in 1997. So, you um, did. I did. the MVP of the legal team. <laughs> the, uh, the person that knew all the evidence and knew what every document showed and what every guy had said you were a great hero in that case the most valuable paralegal <laughs> thank yeah. you um but so how did you first hear about the case and, and when did you meet I judy Barry? i got Barry? a call from from uh, god i can't think of her name and she was helping with the case 
and I knew her, and uh, uh, somebody told her she they, they wanted to help somebody to help, <clears throat> and they I was my name was suggested, and I was just coming off that trial in Buffalo. Well, you so, did have a unique skill set for suing the FBI for civil rights abuses for for attacking activists. So I can see why they wanted to call you. Um, I, I wonder if it's a very large pool of people who even could have uh, led this case against the FBI the way that, that you did in Judy's case. But when did you hear um, about the, the bombing of Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney? I heard about it when it happened, and I thought, oh, you know, I was propagandized just like they planned. You know, I thought, oh, for God's sake, what are they doing with a bomb? Because um, I didn't know any of those people then. Um, what did you think guys. of the environmental movement at that point? Say again? What did you think of the environmental movement in those days? Well, you know, I thought it was uh, problematic. I didn't know what they were going to be able to do, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. It didn't, you know, it seemed like, oh, well... Um, white people, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, that was 1990, the, the climate change specter had not really arisen. I mean, I think some people understood it, but uh, mostly it was about saving the forest and, and uh, the support for the Forest Forever initiative, which was so key, and which was the reason, as it turned out, clearly the reason why uh, they went after Judy. And the FBI got involved with the private sector there to help them out. Well, what uh, happened when you met Judy? Did it did it kind of change your impression of what the environmentalists were doing? You had assumed she was kind of like a white bomb carrying person with <laughs> I, I mean I didn't get into it a lot you know it was that was before we went to Buffalo for that trial which took about four months and you know kind of wiped your brain clean right but uh, um, I knew by the time that uh, uh, I was contacted that there was a serious case there it wasn't clear. Uh, to me, you know, what exactly the case was, but it was clear that that had been a COINTELPRO that, you know, that it was clear. I mean, when they said, no, they didn't have the bomb, I believed that, you know. So, I, I mean, right off the bat. <coughs> and, and then, as it turned out, the whole thing was rigged up, you know, to smear Judy. So we should mention, I think, that um, Judy was driving through Oakland. Uh, she was on a, an organizing tour with uh, her organizing partner at the time, Daryl Cherney, and they were on their way to Santa Cruz to organize students for an action they were organizing up here called Redwood Summer, and it was a nonviolent direct action campaign uh, aimed at stopping the extremely high rate of logging that was happening here at the time. It's, it's kind of hard for... We see a lot of log trucks on the road now that are, that are carrying redwoods, but it was off the scale, and there were massive clear cuts happening throughout the county and Louisiana Pacific Corporation and Georgia Pacific Corporation were um, doing liquidation logging and people were getting very, very concerned about the state of the forest here. And so people were organizing. Um, they were organizing in the woods, doing nonviolent direct action to slow and stop the cut, but they were also organizing in uh, uh, legislation and litigation. They were filing lawsuits. They were. They had this Forest Forever initiative that was a statewide ballot initiative. It was really a, a very, high, a very um, escalated time. It was. It's very different here now, but it was. It was a, a very different time in 1990. And in this context, as Judy and Daryl were driving on this organizing tour, uh, a motion-triggered car bomb exploded underneath Judy's seat, almost killing her. And then the FBI. And the Oakland police showed up at the scene of the bombing in Oakland and arrested Judy and Daryl for transporting explosives. So that's where the story really begins. But um, you met Judy then in 1992? Is that right? Right. Right. Probably early 1992. The, the, uh, what was your impression of her? What was it called? The, 
Oh, the Wobbly Bureau of Investigation. Wobbly Bureau of Investigation, <laughs> right. And what was your she impression was of her? Dennis? Huh? What was your impression of her? Well, I was blown away, you know, just like everybody else. I mean, she was extraordinary. Extraordinary. She, it was like Fred. She was extraordinarily magnetic and direct and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, just open. And, and uh, she wanted everybody to respond that way. And she got them to do it. And, and she, she was uh, amazingly uh, uh, smart politically uh, as an organizer. And as well as t talented in the, in the way of, you know, getting people involved. And so I felt like, well, this is hot, hot stuff, you know. Because I, I, I then, by then, you know, I read a lot of stuff and I, I found how, uh, how blatant the false arrest was and uh, and how deeply the FBI had been involved in engineering it. And uh, it was, you know, it was just, uh, I mean, that was a case that practically did itself, you know. It was so obvious what had happened. And it, just, it was just a question of, of uh, going through all the evidence we took like a hundred depositions, I think. Including flying to Washington, D.C. To, to depose an FBI agent who'd been undercover in one of the Earth First groups in Arizona. It was it has yeah. some echoes, not not to the extreme of the Fred Hampton case, but there were some similarities uh, in terms of the FBI being deep into this movement. Yes. Yes. They, I mean, it was extraordinary that, but they had convinced themselves that by that time that uh, uh, eco-terrorism was going to be the next big thing, right? And that the environment movement was the big menace and uh, had the potential to, uh, uh, you know, move a lot of people. And um, so they got in that boat, they got that, infiltrated that guy into that group in Tucson. And they were trying to do it um, in uh, in uh, uh, Mendo, you know. Yeah. Uh, they, they were trying to get an undercover guy involved in uh, with the the activists. Right. Well, and um, you talked about Judy being able to get people to do things. <laughs> And one of the things, of course, just <laughs> you know, we gotta do this. also, do it? <laughs> right. You and also, like you the Fred Hampton case and the Attica case, the Judy Berry's case took, um, what, 11 years to come to trial. And in the meantime, she uh, died of breast cancer right in the middle of it all. Um, so she didn't live to to go to trial. But you definitely took this case to trial. In the meantime, she got you to work on some other case the Albion Uprising case, when El Louisiana yeah. Pacific sued a bunch of us protesters uh, to try to intimidate us out of protesting, and she got you to... Is that what happened? Did she get you to do it? I... I probably. I don't <laughs> remember exactly. I remember going up there and, uh, and uh, going to Enchanted Meadow... And going to Raven's Call, that was one of the worst things I ever saw in my life, was that those trees cut down in Raven's Call. And, and you know, so I was convinced, and uh, there was a little money around, and I got to say, they did good work organizing, you know, raising money all through those 10, 11 years. A lot more money than we ever were able to get up for to do the Attica case. Um, and so I, you know, it was like work for me, and and good work. And um, and the case was so rich, the evidence was so strong. Uh, it, it was just really uh, like a privilege to be able to work in those circumstances. You mean Judy's case? But, but yeah, with 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 
client, but it, it, the, um, the Enchanted Meadow case was like a prologue to it, you know, because that was, <clears throat> that happened right about just before I got up there, or was recruited, you know, and then, so I just got right into it. I mean, they were, it needed to be done. Yeah, and I remember you in the courtroom in Ukiah during one of the pretrial hearings uh, with Louisiana Pacific's attorney, uh, who at the time was Cindy Mayfield, and um, you were talking about the trees in the courtroom, and I got shivers just listening to um, you talk about how important it was that we were uh, out there protesting. And certainly, since Earth Firsters were being accused of being terrorists, you got a pretty good look at us and saw that the, <laughs> that was really yeah, not I the case. It didn't look too terroristic, <laughs> I must say. Not um, like this guy, Al Baghdadi, or anything like that. Right. Well, and we just have a, a couple minutes left, Dennis. Of course, there's way too many stories to cram into an hour. But um, I also want to talk about the pepper spray case because we did get to trial in Judy's case and. We won. That was yes, one of the did. most remarkable days God of my life. Did. Looking over at you while the jury was reading the verdict and thinking or saying, Dennis, we won. <laughs> yeah, it, it was wonderful. It was yeah. a great feeling, a great high point of life. Just really missed her that day, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but. I did. I did. And we also, she did get to testify uh, because she, um, you recorded a deposition with her before uh, she died and it was yes. played in court. Yes. So she got to tell her own story. It was just, you know, it's just so sad that she couldn't be there in person. Um, and then after that, you took on one more case with us. I think actually probably more. People keep telling me, oh, yeah, Dennis represented me against Monsanto, and Dennis represented us against LP, but um, you took up, oh, you took on, <laughs> you took up on a no, case. Then we went in the pepper spray case, and that was a great case. It was a phenomenal case, <clears throat> because it had been, uh, there had been a hung jury, and then an appeal, and the appeal affirmed the fact that it was a decent uh, cause of action to sue the sheriff for daubing the pepper spray in the people's eyes. And so we had a second trial <coughs> and another hung jury and, and uh, uh, a third trial, and that jury hung too, and then they were called back in and said, look, just make some kind of decision, will you? So we don't have to do this again? And they gave them a dollar. Right. You know, they said it was wrong and awarded them a dollar. Right, so, yeah. and, yeah, so they said that the, the sheriff, the Humboldt County Sheriff, uh, couldn't swab pepper spray into people's eyes with Q-tips, uh, but that there wasn't really any long-term damage that the jury could find that happened to the plaintiffs, so they awarded them a dollar in nominal damages. Right, and those juries were really split, you know. Right. There were, there were these moms who, like, couldn't imagine their kids being in a, in a lockdown, you know, and having the cops saw the pipe to get him loose they couldn't they couldn't that was too scary well we're gonna have to leave it here because um, we just have too many stories and I want to just say that Dennis is gonna this is Dennis Cunningham and I'm Alicia Bales I've been interviewing Dennis Cunningham and he's going to be honored uh, on November 9th at the Environmental Protection Information Center annual meeting in Garberville and he's getting the Semper Virens Award for a lifetime of environmental advocacy and if you want to hear more stories about Dennis's amazing career uh, representing activists in in the social justice and environmental movements um, come up and it's going to be a great celebration. We're going to honor him uh, and tell stories about him and hear about his work. And Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today on the Ecology Hour. Thank you. It's a great privilege to talk on the air with you. And it is a, a privilege to have you. Thank you, Dennis. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.
I have hung out with a lot of lawyers in my time, and Dennis is absolutely my favorite. He had a very healthy um, problem with law enforcement and enjoyed taking them to trial. He was um, um, a, a man of the underdog. No matter who it was, he would take cases that, you know, maybe he couldn't win them, but he would take them because he, somebody needed to do it. But maybe the most important thing about Dennis is what a beautiful soul he he was. How so gentle, a lover of animals, a lover of nature, a lover of people. You know, funny as all get out, um, and just uh, just a beautiful, beautiful person. Well, do you remember when you met him? I do. Um, when we sued the FBI back in 1991, when Judy Barry and I sued the FBI and Oakland police in 1991 for blaming us for bombing ourselves in violation of the First and Fourth Amendments to the Constitution, freedom of speech and freedom from illegal search and seizure and false arrest, um, Bill Sibich took the case um, in 1991. Um, but. That it was an amazingly difficult, complicated case, and Bill was friends with Dennis Cunningham, and another person that we were working with was friends with Dennis Cunningham, and they brought Dennis Cunningham into our case. And the first time I remember seeing him was arguing in front of the, our first judge, who one of the you know relinquishing the case, but it was a Republican judge named Judge Lynch, if you can believe that. And Judge Lynch ruled in our favor. And I just remember Dennis Cunningham in the courtroom. And that's how I, that's how I remember Dennis Cunningham just uh, starting to win our motions and keeping our case in court with his eloquence and his, his cunningness. And what about the last time you saw Dennis? I, along with you, Alicia Littletree Bales, had the honor of hosting and sponsoring Dennis for his last public appearance at the Mendocino County Museum in Willis. We had the Judy Barry exhibit where the bomb car was on display, hosted by the county of Mendocino. You know, who would have thought? You know, in the old days, the county fought us and, you know, considered, considered us the enemy. And then look how what, what time does. We are now honored by the county of Mendocino. And we had six forums that we organized, and one of them was the lawyers coming up, the legal team coming up. And Dennis came up with Ben Rosenfeld, his protege, and came up to City of Willis. Really, just it was actually October. Um, it was the middle of October that he came up. I also was just so happy that Dennis could see the results of his lawsuit, our lawsuit, his lawsuit that he was the lead attorney on in a museum, that he had the ability to come and see that his work was being memorialized and honored, both archived in the museum's archival room, but also on display. And he was very, very pleased with that. Just having been able to share those moments with Dennis was so important. And to me, you know, we don't always get to spend time with the people we love during their last days. And I feel so blessed that we were able to do that for Dennis. All right. Perfect, Daryl. Thank you. I am an attorney, um, and there, <laughs> I, 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 really, I really understand and appreciate all the attorney jokes because I, I find most attorneys to just be pretty terrible. Um, I didn't find Dennis to be terrible. Um, I found him to be quite wonderful. Um, we are afforded pretty significant power. Um, what what Dennis showed was that you should use your power that you have in this life to work for the powerless or or, or the people who lack power or the animals of the planet. Um, you know, be a voice for the voiceless, and that is what he did throughout his legal career. It was an expansive, an important career, and that that was meaningful to me. That that you can be a lawyer and be like Dennis Cunningham. A couple years back, Epic honored Dennis 
uh, in their um, annual meeting with the Semper Virens Lifetime Achievement Award. Do you, will you talk about why you chose the civil rights attorney uh, to get an environmental award and, and how that that ceremony or that honor went, went down? I, I thought it was appropriate just because, <laughs> well, Maybe this is this is kind of my admiration showing. I I thought his career was just so important and it was so broad, um, and he was always on on the the right side, you know, the, the side of the powerless. Um, he represented our friends um, in, in a couple of different instances um, when the powers of government were used to try to silence environmental critics, uh, and, and you know, if nothing else. Um, he deserves recognition for that. But I really wanted to honor his entire legacy from from Fed Hampton and, and representing um, his estate after the, the government killed him to Judy and Daryl um, and bombings and, and all of the, the smaller and bigger cases in between. All right. Well, Tom Wheeler, thank you so much. Thank you. And I, I share... I share your sadness in thinking about a world without Dennis. Um, he was really um, one hell of a guy, and um, I'm going to miss him. This is Alicia Bales remembering the extraordinary life of civil rights attorney Dennis Cunningham, who died Saturday of cancer. He was 86. If you would like to honor Dennis, his family has requested that people share in keeping his memory alive through a memorial donation to the Water Protectors Legal Collective. You can visit www.nlg.org WPLC. That's the website of the National Lawyers Guild at www.nlg.org WPLC, where there's an option on the page to designate donations in memory of Dennis. This invitation is made with love and gratitude from Dennis's children, Delia, Joe, Miranda, and Bernadine. Another way to honor Dennis would be to get involved in the movements for social and environmental justice, which are still strong in Mendocino County, thanks in large part to Dennis's solidarity. On Monday, March 14th, tribal elder Priscilla Hunter is calling for a rally to save the Pomo homelands. That's from 3 to 5 p.m. in Ukiah at Alex Thomas Plaza. And the following week, on March 25th, there will be a rally on the west steps of the state capitol in Sacramento, starting at 1 p.m., with Native American singers, dancers, and drummers. Both events are calling attention to the upcoming logging at the Casper 500 in Jackson Demonstration State Forest and the demand for tribal co-management of JDSF. You can go to pomolandback.com to find out more. I'm Alicia Bales. Thank you for listening. I walked out in the forest when the silver moon was on the rise and Venus shimmered in the fading light and I sat down very Tiny shadow underneath the trees And I heard the night I heard the songs of night Oh, if I had a season to call my own I would come to the woods alone I would lie in the forest and dance all day Sing sweeter music at break of dawn I would dance in the evening light Some say it's the ions Others tell me it's the songs of trees And I don't know No, I don't know why, but when I'm out in the forest, deep inside me 
is a song of peace, a peace with life, with the turning of life. Oh, if I had a season to call my own, I would come to the woods alone. I would and dance all day I would sing sweeter music at break of dawn I would dance in the evening light This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.